That's is that how we start this? I just click the button. I mean, I'm just I I I sit in the passenger seat on this deal, and we don't have music, so no music. What? Scott, could you could you scat the theme song for us today? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thank you so much for joining us today on a hot and sweaty, sunny Friday. We are in the dog days of summer, I guess. This this is the part of the year that I don't know if I like it the least, but I don't like it very much. Because just a few months ago, we had that giant winter storm for which my trees are still dropping limbs. And that was also miserable. So... I think I'd rather be hot than cold, Scott. But I think you're the opposite, right? Yeah, I'll say it. this is the worst part of the year. Like, <laughs> who? I mean, like this. It's this, or I mean, January is not great. February, February can kind of suck. But at least, at least in January, February, you don't get sweaty walking to your car, right? No, but you might lose a toe from like. I'll take it. I have nine. I, I got nine others. All right, you know, well. like. Uh, I just, uh, yeah, I, man, late, late July, August, you know, you're wanting to look forward to football season, but like, it's not here yet. Uh, you know, well, and pol- then, the other thing is like, you really can't enjoy a football game until like October because yeah. it's still hot, right? You know, if you're, if you're a, if you're a super nerdy political junkie, August at the national level, they take the August recess. The August recess is terrible because everybody goes and has town halls in their home districts, which rather than creating an opportunity for like civil discourse, it ends up being a lot of like shouting about various things and like, you know, nothing, nothing gets done. And people always are like, they're taking a week off or a month off from their job. I don't get to do that. So politically it's a sucky time. It's 105 degrees. It's too hot to grill. But it's also too hot to cook in the kitchen. So, you know, just, I guess if you have a pool, it's a good time. But right. Just I'm raw not, carrots. Right? I'm not fancy enough for a pool. So smoothies, smoothies every day. That's what you need. Just smoothies. Well, and, you know, new this year with the August recess of Congress is the opportunity for town halls and COVID, right? Like, I guess it's I mean, not new this year. We had it last year. But, well, they didn't have a lot of them because last year was new and scary and everyone heeded the guidance of public health officials and this year folks are mad about it so you know um, roughly half of us are vaccinated and so we likely be okay but the other half is not and they are not okay and we're not going to go into a, a standard COVID update because i i assume that our listeners know that things are getting worse right just that's the crawl at the bottom of the tv going around things are getting worse Cases are going up. I haven't even looked today, but I'm assuming it's nearing 2,000 cases diagnosed today. It's Close. gone up dramatically it's every like day. 17, 1800, something like that. That was I was going to guess 1800. Yeah. So things are getting worse. So, but let's talk about COVID, but in a different way. Let's talk about the potential impacts of it on on Oklahoma politics. Uh, maybe not national stuff because that's a whole different ballgame, but. This week, we saw a what, in my opinion, was a very misguided post by the governor's social media team, a photo of him eating caviar while in Azerbaijan. Just like a regular American. 
I was like, okay, Azerbaijan, fine. But do you think that maybe caviar might not resonate well with the Oklahoma Cattlemen's Association or something? It just seemed a little bizarre to me. And uh, and in the midst of the spike going on, right? And so the media is clamoring to get a, a statement from him or his office. And all they've gotten is, you know, no comment or or more likely no emergency order. Like, just... Be responsible. Do the right thing. I'm gonna have some more cash. But he won't say. He won't say what the right thing is. He says do the right thing, but it's a personal choice to get the vaccine. He right. says there's no plans to declare a public health emergency, and then they point they point anybody who asks to the health department for uh for further answers to questions who haven't released a statement in like three weeks. Freaking Asa Asa freaking Hutchinson, okay, who's not exactly a rhino, uh, Republican in name only. Um, the governor, governor of Arkansas has declared a public health emergency in Arkansas and uh, is going on a listening tour around the state to encourage people to get vaccinated and apparently is going to call a special session of their legislature so they can come back and undo the law preventing municipalities and school districts from enacting mask mandates in Arkansas. Right? I didn't see that part. Yeah, like they're calling a special session of the legislature to undo the batshit crazy law that they signed in the spring session, which, by the way, everybody told him was a crazy thing to do, and he did it. And and our governor is eating very fancy fish eggs on the other side of the world, um, right. and and won't acknowledge that COVID is still a thing. You know, you asked like you, you know what 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 the politics are. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I believe, as I think many people do, that Governor Stitt intends to run for president. I think he's not going to impose a public health emergency because imposing a public health emergency would allow Tulsa and Oklahoma City school districts to require masks uh, in their classrooms, which they're not allowed to do currently, and they can only do that if the governor declares a public health emergency. And the governor doesn't want the flack from the two biggest public school districts in the country in the uh, state. Um, declaring that kids have to wear masks. He doesn't want that political fallout. Um, but the the flip side of that is going to be that because there's not a public health emergency in place, hospitals can't do several of the things that they did last year to prepare for the winter COVID surge in terms of staffing, in terms of expanding bed capacity, ICU capacity. Like there's really strict laws governing what hospitals can and can't do. And some of those laws are not enforced during a time of a public health emergency. So, you know, not a lawyer, not, you know, not anything really, but like... You are a doctor. I mean... That's relevant. Yeah, it feels less so some days, but, um, (laughs) you know, um, it, it, unless I'm missing something... What's happening is we're we're crippling the public health response for an explicit political what the governor perceives as an explicit political victory. I don't know if it's gonna turn out that way for him or not. I know that there's a lot of people in the hospital. I know that the vast majority of them are unvaccinated. I know that there are people that are being intubated in the hospital asking for the vaccine as they're being intubated and going on the ventilator. Um when that happens, it's too late. Um you know, I uh, I helped staff the COVID unit um, for a little while at my uh, institution um, in the winter surge. Um, and I'm telling patients, you know, if it gets as bad as it was and I have to go back to the hospital, I don't, I don't want to see you there. You know, I love seeing you in clinic. I don't want to see you in the hospital. Right. Um, that's, that is kind of helping some people get over the line. Um, 
I don't know. I'm drifting away from politics here. I'm just having like stream of consciousness because this is all I think about. But well, and you're doing it because this is personal and it's been traumatic, right? It is for me, like just you saying, describing things about being in the ICU and being intubated certainly brings back vivid um, images I have of my own mother, right? Who was there, who we kept hoping would get better, hoping would get better and eventually died, right? Like it was, um, that was not that long ago, folks. It was seven months ago. Um, And I mean, you know, we talk about it every couple of days, right? My dad and I talked about it last night. Like this is still a very real reality. And sadly, we're, we are going to see more people die, right? Yes, it is you know, many older folks are vaccinated, but a lot of younger folks are not. And many of them are going to die too, right? I don't know what, if we want to draw a line somewhere, but it feels like we're not drawing a line at how many deaths are okay. And so as we near three quarters of a million Americans, including several hundred children, right? Um, It's terrifying. So uh, speaking of children and COVID and local control, um, and what hospitals and schools can and cannot do. We have a guest with us today, Scott, who's been uh, smiling at us and uh, cringing at some things, um, I mean, as as we all have, right? And uh, the, the guest, reality... the guest cringe a lot when I talk. Do it. <laughs> the, uh, the the cringing will continue until morale improves. Um, <laughs> so I uh, anyway, joining us is Amanda Ewing from OEA. Hello, Amanda. Hi. Amanda, is your official title something about government relations? My official title is Associate Executive Director of Legislative and Political Organizing. Holy cow, that's a bureaucratic uh, like uh, masterpiece. That's wonderful. Uh, well, congratulations on all of those words that are uh, your title. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do at, and I will say the Oklahoma Education Association, which is the, um, we won't call them a union, the membership organization for educators in our state. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do there. So yeah, OEA is the professional organization for educators and, and support professionals working in public schools. And I head up our, our legislative and political efforts. So I'm uh, the chief lobbyist at the state capitol during legislative sessions, trying to figure out our strategy for passing good bills, supporting public ed and uh, defeating the many, many bad ones. Um, and then uh, I also work on our electoral strategy. So we're trying to you know, find good candidates to run for office and, and helping uh, public ed supporters in both parties get elected, trying to do everything we can to make it a little easier to get to 51 when you need uh, 51 votes to pass a good bill in the House. Right. Although increasingly they need 60 or 75 or something. Uh, but I, I will speak to the power of educators in Oklahoma that after, well, during every election and and once they're sworn into office, the number of state legislators that have either been teachers themselves are married to a teacher or are like the child of a teacher, right? Like everyone will tout that, you know, my, my mother was a teacher, my grandmother's a teacher, my wife's a teacher, I was a teacher. Um, because I, the politicians know this is a constituency that matters in our state. And in theory, we should listen to them and make sure that they're happy. Although that doesn't always happen. 
Right. I mean, we have over 20 legislators in the House and Senate right now who who were uh, or are um, educators. So, you know, yeah, not like you said, not to mention the ones who are married to or related to. I mean, um, if you ask them, they all say they support public ed uh, when it comes down to votes. Sometimes it can be a little different. That's right. Let's. Um, so I want to talk through a few things as it relates to education. And, and I think maybe the way to do it is chronologically. So um, school starts here in a few weeks. So we'll talk about the predicament that schools may find themselves in. And then we'll talk about interim studies, which will happen later this fall. Um, and then we can talk about some, you know, loft and some other things. So, um, so let's start. So as we said at the top of the top of the show, right, there's no emergency declaration in place. So that means that, um, hospitals can't do certain things as Scott mentioned. It also means that schools can't do certain things like require masks. Um, you know, I have heard from like my children's teachers, right. And, and principals that they are already trying to lay the groundwork to say, Listen, we can't do it, but if the governor would issue a, a thing, it'll be immediate, right? Like we've already, we've got the plan written. We don't have to make it up. We just can't do it yet, which I think bespeaks a desire to protect children. <laughs> Call me crazy. What uh, What do you hear from your side? What do you know about how teachers are feeling going into this fall? I mean, I think there's a lot of fear and frustration, you know, for um, all the all that we talk about the need for local control in Oklahoma. I mean, that's you know, you hear that at the Capitol every day. Um, local districts are not being allowed to make their own decisions on on this sort of thing. So a school district can't decide, you know, well, community spread is increasing significantly in our area. So let's mask up for a few weeks until we get past this. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think folks are afraid, um, you know, school districts, I got an email from my, uh, son's high school today saying the same thing, saying if there's an emergency order, masks will be mandatory for everybody immediately. But until then we just strongly encourage them. And I think districts are trying to figure out, are there any ways we can, um, you know, maybe incentivize students to and, and staff to wear them? Are there, you know, can you have a policy where uh, everybody wears a mask unless a parent has come and filled out a form to opt out, opt their student out of wearing a mask? Um, you know, that same law that, you know, made the mask uh, requirements also said you can't have any policy requiring vaccinations. Um, so it's, um, it's tricky. And, and from what I hear, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of folks trying to figure out how can we, how can we go back to school safely? Was that law about not requiring vaccinations, was that specific to COVID vaccinations or does that roll back any requirements for vaccine, like other, like, um, chicken pox and measles and all that stuff. It was Senate bill 658 and it's specific to COVID. It says you can't have a, can't have a COVID vaccination. You also can't have a mask policy that only applies to unvaccinated uh, students who, who don't have the COVID vaccination. Yeah. It's uh it's, it's like, it's like they read the public health guidance for, best practices in this situation and then ran as far as they could in the opposite direction. Um, like it's hard, it's hard to imagine a worse bill um, um, right now, you know, 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's my, I don't know that I have, I don't know that I have much to add. You know, people, I have parents asking me, parents are asking me every day, like, Hey, Dr. Melson, what do you think about sending our kids back to school or sending our kids to daycare? And it's, you know, it's very difficult. I say, you know, I think we can feel confident about several things. Like one, I think we can feel confident that COVID generally the Delta variant specifically is very contagious Two, I think we can feel confident that masking, particularly if it's practiced by the majority of people in a building um, does mitigate spread to like a meaningful degree. Three, um, if your kiddo is in school and they don't have the vaccine, either because you choose not to get it for them or because they're not old enough to get it, I think that their risk of contracting the disease is probably pretty high. Um, and for most kids who get COVID don't get that sick. Um, that is a factual statement. However, it is also factual that there is some subset that we can't predict who can get very sick. Um, and you don't know, you don't know who falls into what group, you know? And, and so it's really difficult to say you should, you know, I, I think this is a, I think this is a situation that families have to make the decision that they think is, is, best for their family in the realm of what's possible for their family. I'm certainly encouraging all of my patients um, and their kids to, if they haven't been working on masking already to wear, to start working on masking now so that it's kind of a, a an easy thing to do uh, when they start school. And, and unless something changes, I think that's the best we can. I think that's the best we can do. Unfortunately, um, Amanda, do you guys, and by you guys, I mean OEA, <laughs> are you, what are you, what are you watching? We're in the political off season, you know, the house approved, I think 117 interim studies, uh, uh, pro tem tree to prove 71, all the interim studies, uh, that were requested in the Senate. Uh, what are you guys watching? What's any, any interim studies that are of particular interest for the education community? Yeah, there are a lot of interim studies that focus on education. And, you know, there are a few that uh, we're specifically working with legislators to help make happen. Um, there's, you know, there's a study that Representative Pay is doing on civics education uh, that we're working on. There's um, one that Representative Johns and Tally in the House are uh, have requested that they're doing that's on the low wages that our education support professionals in our schools make. So our bus drivers, cafeteria workers, office workers, you know, those folks often work at minimum wage. You know, if the school shuts down for a day, then they don't get paid. And so um, we're really trying to kind of highlight and, and bring more of a focus on uh, the need to increase wages for our support professionals uh, with that one. And then we're working with uh, Representative Fricks on a study about defined benefit pensions. You know, teachers after a lifetime of public service get a pension and it's not anything crazy. It's like, you know, $1,600 a month, but you get that, you know, guaranteed for the rest of your life. And so we're going to look at the economic benefit that that provides for our communities because, you know, all of that money goes back into local businesses. Generally it's paying for medications at the pharmacy and food at the grocery store. And um, we really frankly expect next, next session to see some big threats to uh, educators' pensions, and so we're trying to kind of get ahead of things by by focusing on how you know how important pensions are. Um, what are what are the things you see? You know, in terms, of, I agree with you about threats to pensions, but would you maybe expand on that a little bit? What do you guys see coming down the pike? Um, 
So, I mean, with respect to to that particular issue, we saw a bill last year introduced that said, let's move all new teachers into defined contribution retirement systems. So instead of that guaranteed monthly payment for the rest of your life, uh, you save money throughout your career. And when you retire, you have that pot of money to live off of until it runs out. And when it runs out, you're just out of luck. Um, we, you know, we don't. Would you say another would you say another word for that is a private retirement accounts privatization of the uh, privatization of the retirement system as opposed to the pension system that we've that we've had this was a big this has been a big deal at multi levels of go- at multiple levels of government for for years um yeah yeah i would say that's you know essentially what's happening and and the problem is there's a whole lot of money to have there right i mean our teachers retirement system has about 13 billion dollars in it right now so there are a lot of folks that say wow that's you know that's money that we could be um investing we could be trying to make a profit off of there are fees to be had if you're managing it um and so if you can get you know future folks to move into these yeah kind of private 401k type plans um, you know, it's it's not going to work out in the best interest of the educator, but there's a lot of money to be made for a lot of people. It's funny how that influences things. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, that's all a really good summary. Amanda, are there any other interim studies that you think uh, our listeners should pay attention to? Yeah, definitely. There are uh, a couple on education management organizations and charter school sponsors. I think those are trying to get at kind of the the laws uh, surrounding virtual schools and specifically, you know, Epic is a school that's been in the news a ton in recent years um, for potential fraud. And um, I really think that those interim studies could shed some light on, you know, how these um, entities are doing what they're doing and, and what laws need to change to fix it. There's also a study on tax credit vouchers. You know, uh, the legislature made a huge expansion of these tax credits this past session to incentivize folks to donate their money to private schools. Um, Representative Eccles, who shepherded that bill through, has asked for an interim study on it. I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure what he plans to study at this point, but it's a little concerning to me because um, it could highlight an intention to expand that program even further next year. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So we already passed the law, but now we're going to study it. Um, that's a yeah. vote first and ask questions later. Yeah, uh, that seems like not the way to govern. But you're right. And and to be fair, I think the term interim studies is a bit of a misnomer sometimes because it's they are typically presentations, right? And they, I in my opinion, interim studies across the board vary in their studiousness, right? Like they have study in the name, but sometimes it's really like a dog and pony show because the legislators who request them get to basically by and large pick who comes to speak, right? I think they may have to run it by a committee chair, but you can kind of line up the guests who are speaking about an issue. And in some cases, it's often because an organization or an individual requested a study as a way to lift up an issue and get some information and some discussion and awareness of an issue, right? So uh, when I was working in uh, the HIV community, we worked with a state legislator to have an interim study about um, the uh, health education mandates in this from the State Department of Education 
as it relates to HIV and about updating them. And we, we just tried running a bill one year and it didn't go anywhere. And so we realized, oh, we probably need to do some education with lawmakers first and kind of bring it up. Now they don't all come, right? Like there was just really two that were there, but it at least kind of puts it out there. So folks are aware of like, oh, okay, these folks are going through the process or doing the steps um, to, to get to the end of, you know, getting some legislation passed. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that they're often just presentations rather than actual studies. I, I've rarely seen an interim study where, you know, two sides of an issue are presented. It's real often just going to be one side. I think also they can sometimes be used as uh, cop outs for um, folks who maybe don't want to introduce a bill on a topic, maybe, um, you know, don't. Um, don't want to have to tell a constituent no, but they'll say, how about we do an interim study on that, you know, in the, in the interim instead. Um, but then, you know, sometimes they are legit. If you can get committee members there, you know, maybe you can get the press to cover your study. Maybe, you know, you can, if you really are, are working it, then it, it can be the, you know, initial steps towards introducing a law and, and ultimately passing it. Yeah. I, I find them particularly helpful when they deal with like, um, studying or estimating the cost of a s- certain program or the benefit of something. I mean, we have, you know, groups like loft, right. And advisory committees that are supposed to do this, but sometimes this is a good time to do it, to be like, okay, well, if we ran a bill about this, what would it actually cost? And so it's a very formal process of doing your research. So I think like many things in government when used properly, it can be very helpful and powerful. All right. Well, um, this has all been really great. I mean, it's great to have you here. Um, we're going to keep talking about some other things. You are welcome to stick around and chime in as you, as you feel uh, compelled to do. Uh, but I want to take a pivot away from education and talk about some new appointees the governor has made this week. I guess it's been two weeks since our last episode. We didn't acknowledge that at the top of the show, but it's been two weeks, listeners. Welcome back. Uh, we have a new attorney general. He does not yet have theme music on our show. So far, that's only Scott Pruitt. Um, General Hunter didn't uh, didn't get any theme music, but um, we do have a new uh, AG. His name is John O'Connor, and his appointment was not without a bit of, uh, of I mean, like consternation, but like discussion on Twitter. That's what it was. It was not without discussion on Twitter. <laughs> um, Scott, you do you know anything about? Um, Attorney General O'Connor? Yeah. Uh, So he's been a lawyer for like 30 years. He's been in practice uh, here in Oklahoma. He's worked on a variety of issues. Uh, I think he's most well known for being nominated for a federal district judgeship by um, President Trump. Um, He did not get confirmed by the Senate. He withdrew his name from consideration after being deemed not qualified for a federal judgeship by the American Bar Association, which is uh, a distinction that's not often conferred on, uh, on people. Um, but uh, but uh, uh, happened a few times during the last presidency. So, you know, I, I don't work with the American Bar Association to determine who is, is and is not qualified to be a federal judge, but it seems like, I mean, it seems like that's a big deal. Um, you know, um, the other yeah, thing I heard that there's only been five people who have ever been nominated and did not, did not get the 
the nod from the bar association. And there's more there. There's been more than like 10 nominees total, right? Like there's like, there's been like a lot of judges. So, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so that's, you know, that's, that's not great. Um, his first, I guess not his first official act, but I think made one of his main, like one of his major first official acts was filing a uh, brief with the Supreme Court, um, asking and advocating that they overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, you know, which is this is interesting because, and Amanda, you're you are a lawyer by training, right? Yeah. So uh, if I'm like a hundred percent wrong on anything I'm about to say, please jump in and tell me. Um, but like my, I the the abortion stuff is interesting because really over the last like i don't know i guess like 20 years or so the last couple of decades um when opponents of legalized abortion have tried to kind of chip away at roe they very rarely if ever like actually ask the court to overturn it like the strategy has been you know allow states to impose requirements on doctors and requirements on clinics or requirements on women, like basically allow states to create this, like multiple layers of like barriers that women, doctors, clinics have to go through so that eventually it becomes abortion may be legal, but it's de facto impossible to access because there are so many barriers. Like that's been the legal strategy to try and craft laws that the court will uphold as not, like they don't violate Roe, but they also like make it harder to get abortions as a practical matter. This year, I think it's Mississippi. Mississippi has filed an express challenge to Roe. There are multiple other attorneys general who have filed briefs specifically asking the court to overturn Roe. There was an amicus brief that was, I think it's an amicus. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know what that word means. Um, there was a, there was an amicus brief. Um, that was uh, filed by a bunch of legislators um, explicitly asking um, for, oh, friend of the court brief. There you go. Um, um, amicable. That makes so you're, much sense. Is that you're welcome. I want listeners to know that came from me, not from the attorney. Yeah. One of the, <laughs> one of the three Latin phrases I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, um, no, but uh, uh like this is new, like having like legislators, um, organizations, states, attorneys general, like specifically saying to the court, our goal here is overturning Roe is a new and rather like bold approach. I assume that's because of the makeup of the court now is is more conservative than it has been probably in most of our lifetimes. Um at least since I've been paying attention to Supreme Court politics. So, you know, for like the last 10, 15 years. Um, yeah, so we're talking about the uh, the AG, but that's, that's, that's my take is that, you know, the American Bar Association said like, oh, not this guy in terms of a judgeship, um, but Governor Stitt said he is exactly what we need. So, oh, the other thing is he's committed to trying to overturn McGirt. Um um, which we've talked a lot about on the show, you know, again, as I've said, I don't know what's going to happen, but the Supreme court is often reluctant to overrule a case that they themselves decided very recently. So I don't know how much luck they're going to have with McGirt. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think, so I thought his appointment was interesting. And on the one hand, he feels like exactly who we expected that 
the governor would appoint, right? Uh, especially when it comes to things like Roe and McGirt and those cases. Um, on the other hand, like reading through his bio and one of the numerous news stories about him, on paper, he sounds very qualified. But then there's this weird deal with the American Bar Association not recommending him. And it sounds like it stemmed from his time at the um, Oklahoma State Insurance Department and that there was some um, um, issues there with his, they, let me phrase it here. This is from a non-doc article. Um, so the chairman of the committee at the ABA didn't cite specific examples, but he wrote a letter outlining concerns about O'Connor's employment at the Oklahoma Insurance Department and a pair of complaints filed against him in 1994 and 2012, which are all, that's a long time apart. Uh, and so I don't know what those concerns were. I haven't read through that, but you got to feel like it had to be something pretty gnarly for them to not endorse him. Um, and the fact that that basically prevented him from being considered for that appointment, that's a big deal. Now, obviously being a judge is different than being uh, a chief prosecutor, right? That's Those are very different roles in the legal system. I know a lot of attorneys, most of them would not make great judicial members, right? Like <laughs> Amanda's laughing. I assume that's the same for you. Um, we're not, we're not going to evaluate your judicial uh, jurisprudence, but I think there's a lot of good attorneys that would be terrible judges. And there's some judges that are better as judges and not great attorneys. Like it's a different skill set, I think. And uh, this goes back to an early episode we had, Scott, where we learned that special judges don't even have to go to law school. Um, I could be a judge. Waiting, waiting for my appointment here. That's right. Yeah, I can be a judge. I, I, I totally I'll tell be you a what, judge. I look great in a black robe. So <laughs> that's a, a, a moo-moo for the modern man. That's right. And so um, I, I would be excited. Anyway, um, I guess we'll see how this plays out. He has already said uh, that he plans to run for election or re-election next fall, which mean, I mean, he's going to be in office for just a few months. He's going to try to make a name for himself and then run on that name next year. Um, but also Gittner Drummond. Yeah. Possibly the best name. The, in, get, the Gittner's back. Just who among us can take credit that our, that our name sounds like a weather term, right? A man-made weather term. Anyway, Gittner Drummond, who is an attorney and narrowly lost the Republican primary to Mike Hunter four years ago or in 2018. Um, and so he has already announced his campaign for attorney general as well. Uh, and so, you know, I'm there's in some cases there is um, the incumbent um, momentum, right? That incumbents for office are often reelected just based on name recognition and incumbency status. But I think, I think if I remember what Nate Silver has said, that does not extend to people who have been appointed to their office. Of course, Nate would be talking about like congressional seats, not state attorney general of Oklahoma. Uh, and so we'll see what happens. I might vote for Drummond based on name alone. So I can say like the Gittner. You can't, you can't vote in a Republican primary. I could change my registration from oh, independent to mean, Republican. You could, you could. That's there's true. not, there's, there's no, uh, there's not much happening in the independent primaries because there's not one. It's a very boring time. Uh, yeah. So that's, uh, man, I'm, I'm depressed now. Um, cheer up Scott. We've got a new Supreme court justice as well here in Oklahoma. We do. She was, uh, 
I don't know if elevated is the correct. Would elevated be the correct term? Because she was previously on the Court of Criminal Appeals, right? Well, she's still appointed. Oh, you, you mean as opposed to promoted? Yeah. Well, like, like, because the Court of Criminal Appeals is the other highest court in Oklahoma, right. and isn't isn't the Court of Criminal Appeals the highest court in Oklahoma for criminal cases? Yeah, they're they're like uh, parallel. Yeah, sister courts. So she wasn't. Amanda she wasn't promoted. She was she was transferred. Right. right. Well, she was. Yes, that's why she was Amanda. Is it is it a promotion or is this a lateral move? I mean, it feels like a promotion still. I mean, even if they are technically you know parallel, um, it's the just because it has the word supreme in it. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's it's supreme. Exactly. Right. I've never been supreme anything. (laughs) That's true. I agree. You've not. I would. (laughs) I would one day like to have a job that has supreme in the title. Now we're getting close to the Supreme Leader, which is a whole different conversation. Well, there's nothing in the medical field that has Supreme. I'll have to, like, I don't know. Really? I don't think so. Hmm. Maybe you could, uh, I mean, at some point, you can just start inventing titles. That's the that's the dream, right? <laughs> you is to have a position where you can just make up a title. Started. You are going to be the assistants to the regional manager, right? Yeah, right, right. Or you just say, start a company. People come in and say, so you're the CEO. No, no. I'm the Supreme. That's right. That's yeah. it. You just call me. That's my whole title, The Supreme. I was listening to a podcast this week um, about. Uh, it's called Brought to You by. Um, it's a really great podcast from Business Insider. There's an episode about Big Ass Fans, the company that's called Big Ass Fans. Oh, they make great and fans. They they do. They that was not the original name, uh, and so he was interviewing the the owner, and he said, "That's right. I am the." Chief Big Ass. That's what it says on my business cards. <laughs> That's delightful. And I was like, okay, I mean, that makes sense, right? If you're going to lean in. Some really funny stories about like when they'd send out mailers in like the newspaper and stuff and people would call and yell at them because like, why are you putting this profanity in my mailbox? And he's like, well, I didn't put it there. But um, a lot of folks were, had strong feelings about the name of a fan company that involves a donkey. So anyway, back to... Um, the Supreme Court Justice, uh, Dana Kuhn, I believe is how you pronounce her last name. So yeah, she's been the presiding judge for the Court of Criminal Appeals, which is like the chief justice, um, I think, for the for the last year. And um, I, from everything I've read about her, seems also very qualified, right? Uh, and so we're going to, uh, this, this means now that Governor Stitt has appointed four or five justices, but I think it gives him, good, it gives him a majority. Does it with this one or is it one more? I thought it was this I think one. There, there's a chance that he's appointed three. I think this is the fourth, but I think this, so maybe he's one shy of a majority, but his term's not over. And there's always rumors because some of our justices are pretty up there in years. So there's a chance that governor Stitt could appoint a majority of our state Supreme court, which I, I don't know. Separation of power seems like one governor should not be allowed to appoint more than half the court. Scott, stop listening. But that's my opinion. No, I, I'm just. I mean, I'm. I. 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 I don't. I don't disagree. But like, uh, to the victor go the spoils, right? I mean, that's the. Yeah, sure, but that shouldn't. That shouldn't be a spoil that's allowed. That's what I'm saying. You're suggesting you can, you can appoint up to four, but no more. You don't get to appoint a whole majority. I mean, or we could move to a system 
where judges are selected by lawyers and other judges who actually can evaluate their credentials on the merits and their experience as opposed to making the legal system into a tool of partisan warfare at every level of government. Crazy talk. Right. Crazy talk. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about this before. It's been, I mean, it's been a couple of years, so I guess I can go off on the rant. But like, I mean, it is just, I mean, it's crazy when you think of it. Like, we elect judges. Like, that's nuts that you like that we like elect judges. You we know, like a lot of things. I mean, that's true, but like court, court clerk, which is just kind of weird, tbh. But I, I, I mean, I hear you. Like, I wish it wasn't the case that like. I mean, the same thing happens at the Supreme Court, right? Like. President Trump was in office for was in office for four years, impeached twice, and appointed thirty percent of the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, and it's just—I mean, some of that was just bad luck for for the other side, right? Like it's just timing that he happened to be the one in office when when RBG died. Like it, you know, that's just the way it goes. He happened to be the one in office when the Senate Majority Leader held a seat open for nine months so that he could appoint one. Oh, there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know. Uh, one thing was intentional. The other thing is just just uh, dumb luck. All right, man. Uh, Scott, anything else you want to talk about today? No, please. If you're not vaccinated, for the love, please get your shot. If there's people in your family that aren't vaccinated, please encourage them to get their shot. Um, I will also say um, I have started testing people um, a lot more than I had been in the past couple of months. You know, our disease prevalence had gotten low enough that uh, we weren't testing quite as frequently. Um, if you have symptoms that could be consistent with coronavirus, this includes either uh, infection with wild type virus, which is, you know, the fever, fatigue, body aches, uh, or the kind of loss of taste and smell. Or if you have symptoms that might be more consistent with the Delta variant, which would be uh, headaches, sore throat, plus or minus fever and body aches, um, please talk to your doctor. Please see about getting tested. Um, even if you are fully vaccinated, we are seeing breakthrough infections. That doesn't mean the vaccines don't work. Breakthrough infections are to be expected with any vaccine. Um, um, so if you, even if you are vaccinated, if you are having symptoms, please discuss with your physician about whether or not they think that you should be tested um, and get tested if possible. It's important that we identify as many cases as we can um, because that helps us know what, what the, what the prevalence of disease is in our community. And that helps us um, model and plan. All right. That's it. Scott, thanks for being here. I wouldn't miss it. Amanda, thanks for being here as well. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Listeners, thank you for being here because that's the reason we're here is for you. Um, Look forward. Next week, we'll have State Senator Julia Kurt uh, on the show. And then I know we have a couple of others scheduled in coming weeks. Uh, I think in September, we'll have State Labor Secretary Leslie Osborne. And somewhere between now and then, we'll have uh, the folks from Sally's List back on. Uh, Sarah Jane Rose and Alyssa, they they were on the show, gosh, a couple of years ago, back when we were in a, had an actual studio and didn't have to do it all online. Uh, and so we're excited to have them back. We're working to schedule some additional guests over the summer um, in between, uh, you know, times that we're just standing in front of the open refrigerator to try to cool off. Okay. Scott's already done the whole closeout, so I'll just end by saying, remember that decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week.